Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of my podcast, Foolproof Mastery. Today, we're going to be talking about the neglected aspects of nutrition online, which are the sociological, psychological, and philosophical aspects. For this, I have someone who I respect a lot, uh, Jabian Rosario. He's a ghostwriter and a nutritionist, personal trainer. He's got degrees in psychology and philosophy. He's a scientific communicator and ghostwriter, and he focuses on the critical thinking applied to nutritional science. And he's also got a keen interest in nutritional epidemiology. Jay is also an author. He's written Immune to BS, and he runs the page Science by Jay, which is on many different platforms such as Instagram, Twitter, and it's a page which really shows people how to think critically in all aspects when it comes to nutrition. So, Jay, thanks for having you here. And so just to make things easy, could you tell me what is Science by Jay and why you wrote your book, Immune to BS? Hey, thank you for having me, Patrick. So Science by Jay is a dream project. It's um, sort of the manifestation of my love for science and my love for communicating science to the general public. Um, generally, I focus on health sciences, uh, particularly nutrition and, you know, the various facets of nutrition, uh, especially nutrition epidemiology. But I do cover other aspects of, you know, science. Sometimes I cover, you know, general critical thinking, the philosophy of science, the sociology of science, etc. Now, when it comes to immune to um, BS or the other word, immune to bullshit, um, that book was generally a, a brainchild of mine. So I really wanted to help people think critically about science, think critically about claims people make online and think critically about the world around them. So there's a lot of BS out there online, especially, and I want people to be immune from that. Okay. Thanks for your answer. And what sort of aspects does the book, um, go over so how do we actually become immune to bs in a short little summary so the book covers the main three i think parts of critical thinking which is thinking about logic and rhetoric um then thinking about the cognitive sciences and thinking about data literacy so when it comes to logic and rhetoric it's important to know uh, how arguments are constructed how they're broken down and how do we separate a good argument from a not so good argument? So this requires understanding of the basics of uh, logical deduction, um, understanding of logical fallacies, and how to construct a cogent, um, well-formulated argument. Now, when we're moving to the cognitive sciences, it's important to understand the mental aspect of reasoning and thinking through problem solving, like how do we reason about the world, how do we problem solve around the, about the world, and what are some of the implicit biases that we have when reasoning, when um, dealing with the world, because our sensations are, are limited, um, our reasoning capacity is always going to be limited, and there's a social component to our reasoning which needs to be brought into the discussion. And this all revolves around cognition, how we think. The third aspect is data literacy. So how do we understand numbers in the world? How do we understand statistics, mathematics, and um, how do we think through large sums of data? Because ultimately data 
uh, especially data analytics, you know, data science is growing as a field. So data is becoming more and more prevalent in our lives. So we need to understand what that data means, how it's being used, and the context in which it's being delivered to us. So that is really what immune to bullshit is really about, explaining those three tenets. Great. And I would like to talk a little bit about diets in general. And maybe some of the stuff uh, in your book will apply to this uh, as we go on in, in this interview. So with regards to diets, I'd like to talk about the discussion we often see on social media, the health claims that people make both in books, uh, social media, and in general life, and the self-identity that comes with nutrition. Because a lot of people, they sometimes can become like identified with a specific diet and just uh, sort of ignore the evidence which you've been talking about in your book and how to critically analyze. So just to start off things, why is dietary advice so confusing? Like how can there be people on social media in books saying completely different things on the spectrum and all claiming to be right? So, I mean, part of the problem is with nutritional science itself is that people, everyone eats food. Everyone has food, you know, available to them. Um, everyone has a particular way of eating. So we want to think of nutritional science not as complex, but as something that is easy and intuitive to understand. Now, this isn't always the case. You know, like there's many barriers to having a quality diet. And there's a lot of uh, miscommunication and confusing, uh, confusion surrounding what it means to have a quality diet. Uh, part of the issue is, is that, especially online, when people are trying to sell people things, they often create problems to sell solutions. Now, diet is a really big part of health, uh, health in general, because what we eat does impact to some extent or the other our health status. So to focus on sort of a major part of our health, uh, people often come up with, you know, their own tips and tricks and, and <laughs> their own ways of thinking through this complex thing uh, to sell to people, you know, and, and ultimately, you know, we all have to eat. So a lot of times people buy into this advice um, and they consistently do it. So, I mean, that, I think that's the reason why, and partially because it's so online just makes it really, really difficult. First off, and the fact that, you know, it's a very intimate subject that people think they know a lot about, but they really don't is another issue. And the fact of the matter is, is that we want to think of it as an intuitive uh, thing that's really easy to comprehend and understand, but it's a whole entire science. Yeah, I was going to ask you, actually, why does everyone think they know about nutrition? But you sort of answered my next question, because we all eat every day. We all get our own personal anecdotes. So, for example, uh, like my mom and dad, they've never studied nutrition, but they still, I, I'm someone that studies nutrition. I'm not saying I know anything, but they still seem that they still always give me advice and stuff, what to eat based on their own personal anecdotes. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the difficult part because um, ultimately, like, we want to, we want to, think that we're doing the right thing when it comes to diet. We want to think that we're eating quality foods. We want to think that our advice is universal and applies to everyone. But when you're in the clinical or scientific space, you start to realize that, you know, uh, diet is not universal, first off. And then second, 
um, even if there's certain dietary patterns that we want people to follow, it's not easy for everyone to follow those. You know, there's some, there's an art to the science. Um, but it is a science at the end of the day, like there's still evidence for certain practices over others. Um, it's still pretty complicated when you talk things about like metabolism, Krebs cycle, you know, all this other stuff. And then when we get to the sociological, psychological component, like it gets even more complicated, you know, um, your food didn't just arrive to your plate by accident. There was a whole system involved with that. So. And I feel like some of the things that I see on social media, they're almost like selling a false sense of reality. I feel sometimes like, uh, for example, I see, I think maybe it's a lot in America, like this carnivore movement. And personally, I've never actually met someone that eats like this, but like, I feel like, yeah, for people that don't know, there's people on social media just saying you should, should just be eating meat only diets. And like, none of this is based in evidence. And like a, a few people could potentially stumble on this advice and think it's true. And then that could lead to like very bad consequences, right? Yeah. I mean, like that's the thing uh, with fad diets, um, they're very seductive. And um, with the carnivore movement right now in the United States, it's, uh, I think, a proxy of the low-carbon paleo community. So they're, they're kind of basing their arguments off of some of those tenets and taking it to the extreme. Um, also, there's a, another component to this. Uh, the carnivore diet plays on uh, tr our traditional ideas of masculinity. Um, it also plays into a whole so social, economic sort of viewpoint. You know, uh, you ask many people that follow the carnivore diet, they often put, portray themselves with a certain political party or certain political ideology. So I think it's it's deeper than just um, the extreme form of just eating all meat. I think there's a lot of layers to unpack there. But, you know, I, I think part of the issue is wanting to seem unique, wanting to stand like stand out and wanting to uh, go against the grain. Right. If traditional scientific consensus and, um, you know, establishments are telling you to eat fruits and vegetables, it's really appealing for a contrarian person to uh, not eat fruits and vegetables and just eat an all meat diet because, you know, the government and whoever is trying to kill us with fruits and vegetables, <laughs> even though it makes it makes no logical sense, but it's what a lot of these people feed off of. People always feel like there's some sort of they out for them, right? Some sort of organization trying to harm them. But fortunately yeah. in Europe, yeah. Fortunately in Europe, I, I personally, I've never met anyone who has eaten like this only meat. So in Europe, uh, there's more the vegan movement that's more bigger here. And I feel, I feel also that the vegan diet also has its own fair share of fallacies. I don't know if you agree with this or not. So, I mean, like now that I've interacted more with the vegan community because of a function of my critique of keto, the ketogenic diet and the carnivore diet, I do agree that there's extreme versions of veganism. There are individuals who state falsehoods about um, the role animal foods place on health. Um, so, you know, saying that dairy is inflammatory, for instance, or it's going to kill you or bad for you and data is just not there or, but Part of the issue is, is that when you identify with a diet, um, it often does become part of your social identity. And it's really hard to separate yourself from what you eat. 
Um, we see this with the carnivores. We see this with the vegans. Um, with veganism, it's a little bit different, I would say, because first, there's a lot more evidence supporting that eating more of a plant-based, which is different than plant-exclusive diet, has health benefits compared to eating all meat diet, which has no evidence whatsoever of having conferring any health benefits. Um, and there's an ethical component. You know, I won't get too much into the ethical component of it, but there are some, I think, legitimate arguments in the space that we have to address when talking about veganism. Um, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, you sort of answered a few of my next questions, actually. So people like to follow diets because they're sexy and makes them feel different. I was going to ask you whether this is the case, but you answered, you answered this. We all like a story. We like something which makes us stand out. So I don't see anyone advertising just omnivore diets that are, that are high in plants anymore. Right. I mean, like that's, I feel like that's the more, the more appropriate reason approach um, that's supported by a good chunk of the evidence base is to have a Mediterranean style of diet. You know, this is, doesn't mean, you know, you cut out, you know, meat exclusively, or you just eat exclusively plants, but a good chunk of your, um, caloric intake, your, your energy, like your energy intake is going to come from plant-based foods, whole plant-based foods, you know, and, you know, we're going to have obviously polyunsaturated fats, which is supported by the evidence compared to saturated fats and more, I guess, lean cuts of, you know, protein. Uh, we're talking about things like, you know, red meat, which we want to kind of not have too, too much of, um, chicken, you know, fatty fish because of the omega-6, you know, I feel like that's a more uh, measured, reasonable approach based on the evidence for, uh, an optimal diet for most folks that aren't, you know, you know, are living right now. Um, obviously there's going to be exceptions to the rule, but you know, that's where the evidence seems to be heading towards. Yeah, I would agree with that. So there are different like variations also of the Mediterranean diet, such as the Nordic diet, but they're also all based on whole grains, lots of beans, pulses, and like, yeah, they all don't exclude any particular food group, which I, I think is quite important. If, would you agree that like just the act of being on a diet and it completely just saying, I cannot have something, can that be detrimental? So... It depends on which camp you're talking to. I'm on the side that for, for me, the dieting mentality, our, our cultural sense of diet, our understanding of diet isn't helpful for conferring long-term change for most people, I would say. Because when you have this, uh, this word of diet, there's a connotation that it's restrictive. It's a connotation that you have to have a certain outcome. When in all reality, a diet is just a pattern of eating. From a psychological perspective, you know, we have evidence that suggests, you know, chronic dieting is correlated with eating disorders and disordered eating. We have evidence to suggest that, you know, there's a lot of people that, unfortunately, when they go on a certain diet, like a, a diet, whatever, caloric restricted diet, they gain back a lot of their weight, you know. So, <laughs> I mean, I want to reframe the term diet from something that has a negative connotation to it's more uh, neutral term, which is a pattern of a particular pattern of eating. Um, and obviously we want to make that pattern of eating really optimal for people. 
and not be so restrictive or thinking that, you know, these are diet foods or I got to eat clean or I got to do this or I got to do that. We want, we want it to be more neutral sort of term. Um, yeah, but that's just my view on it. Yeah, I think pattern gives a little bit more freedom because I think sometimes people see maybe diets associated with rules and right. just the, the, these rules could make it more fixed. Right, like these really strict rules. And it's like um, when it comes to having a whole dietary pattern, you know, eating a donut's not going to kill you. But obviously we want to not just eat donuts. You know, no one's making the argument that we're, we're just going to eat junk and that's how we're going to eat it. But no one's, but people should also understand that people have lives. You know, sometimes I want a chocolate bar. Sometimes I want a donut. Why can't I have it? You know, why do I have to be restrictive upon myself? So I think when you add this layer of restriction, when you add this layer of dichotomous thinking, it becomes disordered. It becomes a problem. You have to think in terms of a continuum of a spectrum. There's certain foods that are more helpful and helpful for my goal, but there's certain foods that are less helpful um, and less nutrient dense that I probably don't want to have that be the, the majority of my diet. I've got you. So if we talk a little bit more about like social media, like diatribes play a big thing. And uh, a lot of people these days, they seem to evaluate nutritionists based on like how they look. So like on the, how much muscle they have or like how fit they look. Like how do you answer to people that make these claims like, oh, this person looks good or he's like super muscular on this diet. Therefore this must be like the optimal diet for health. I mean, just cause something works for someone doesn't mean it's going to work for you. Um, obviously point blanks, like seriously, like if you look at people who are bodybuilders, the way that they eat often very restrictive, very down to the macro type eating majority of people can't eat like that long-term. So just because someone looks good in your opinion doesn't mean that you're going to follow their exact diet and have their exact results. There's also a genetic component. There's a training component. There's a, there's other uh, things in there. When a person whose livelihood is fitness, they have more time than let's say the lay person to train, to do certain things that other people can't do. Um, and also, can you even afford uh, another person's diet? I can't afford the rocks diet. You see how much the rock eats? That guy's built as hell. I can't eat like him. Most people can't eat like him. So, I mean, that's, it's just something to consider. And also like when we're talking about looks, there could be someone that looks really, really jacked, but they don't know shit when it comes to the science of health. My, my phrase uh, in frame of mind is you throw enough shit on the wall, something's going to stick. So if a person accidentally follows a certain pattern and certain training style, they're going to see certain results. Um, those results are not necessarily indicative that they know what they're talking about and know what they're doing. Um, for instance, you have athletes who have personal trainers, have people, personal chefs, whatever may have you, um, you know, helping them look a certain way. They're probably really good at their sport, but they don't understand the science of how they got there because that's not their job. <laughs> you know, so you have to think about it in context. Uh, I think the problem is, is when these people, they, they will then say the science is on their side. So on social media, you have a lot of people who will like quote science or take specific papers and then say this backs up what I'm saying. This way of eating is optimal for human health. 
So, I mean, like, my main rebuttal to that is uh, anyone can cherry pick certain studies to state whatever they want. Um, the carnivore crowd does it all the time. Um, the vegans do it sometimes. Keto zealots do it. You know, everyone who has a certain diet that's applied to their identity does it. You're going to cherry pick whatever whatever favors you to some extent. It doesn't mean that that re- represents the evidence base as a whole, the entire body of evidence. When you're looking at a study, if you're, if you're if someone props up a study, a singular study at that, that says, look, this backs up what I'm saying, therefore I'm right, I think it's it's a big warning flag because there are strengths and limitations to every single study that's out there. Um, to convey the research in, in, in context, you never state absolutes. And um, obviously we want to look at more than just one or two or three studies when forming an opinion. Um, this is why, you know, something like a meta-analysis or systematic review is very important. Yeah, so. Yeah, it would be much better, I think, sometimes if these people that have no evidence, they'll just say, okay, this diet works for me. It's completely based on anecdotes. If they're just, like, open to the people that it works for them, but it's only anecdotal evidence, so a sample of one. Right. I mean, like, and, and a lot of people don't want to admit that because, you know, people shit on science, the science of nutrition a lot, but it does convey some type of authority. It does convey some type of um, access to knowledge. So, you know, everyone wants to sit there and say the science is corrupt, the scientists are corrupt, but they're also the first people to cherry pick a study that supports what they state, no matter how good quality it is or not. Um, so, you know, it's 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 important to be aware of these contradictions and logic. People who are trying to promote a certain narrative or certain message are not going to be consistent in their reasoning. Oftentimes they're not, you know, this is why we have to be considerate and cognizant of the strengths and limitations of the evidence base. So for the general public, the best source of evidence is like nutritional epidemiology, you would say, just what happens on the ground scale of things. So I would say that not that nutritional epidemiology is the top that everyone has to uh, just look at nutritional epidemiology. I think there's also good RCTs out there. I think there's good, um, you know, trials out there that uh, really look at intermediate biomarkers or whatever may have you or, you know, whatever. So I think the the problem is, is that we overemphasize a certain portion of the evidence base, which is RCTs, you know, other types of trials versus epidemiology. Epidemiology has its place in the evidence base. It should be respected. So I'm not saying that everyone should just pay attention to epi. What I'm saying is epi should be a part of the conversation. So when we talk about evidence, we shouldn't just say, oh, this is the observational study, so I don't give a f- I don't care about it. We should start saying, how does this fit in into the other evidence? How does this add to the picture? Because there's certain strengths from let's say a prospective cohort study compared to an RCT. Because a prospective cohort study could be do- could be done for 20 years compared to an RCT that can only be done for 12 weeks or not even. You know, so we have to, like I said, look at the strengths and limitations of the evidence base and see that certain study designs are more appropriate for certain questions and are more appropriate to get us to certain answers. So that's why we kind of synthesize the evidence and look at it from multiple different angles to come to a conclusion.
So Epi should be a part of the discussion. It should be a serious part of the discussion. It shouldn't be just hand waved because it's observational. Okay. And just so everyone knows that we're on the same page, like you've mentioned a few terms in the last minute. So you talked about like nutritional epidemiology, prospective cohort studies. Uh, you talked about RCTs. Uh, could you just define these for some, for the, just the general layman? Or what, what do they mean, these terms? So nutritional epidemiology is the study of disease. I would say disease related to nutrition nutritional status. So that could be certain nutrients, certain dietary patterns, um, just like how nutrition is connected to disease, um, especially like chronic disease. Um, when we talk about RCTs, I'm talking about randomized controlled trials. So randomized controlled trials, um, it's pretty much big to get into, but it's taking one group, comparing it to another group, randomizing them. So um, you know, we're, we're trying to make it as fair as possible, kind of like picking, um, sort of, a, a note out of a hat. All right. This person goes to this group. This person goes to the other group and we compare them based on a certain intervention or treatment. So let's say one group takes a drug one group doesn't, we compare those two groups and we make sure that the people that are in each group were done so randomly. So we don't want all men in one group and all women in one group. We want an even distribution of both. When it comes to prospective cohort studies, a cohort study is essentially we take a group of people, we follow them for a number of years, prospectively, that means in the future, and we see if there's any correlation between their habits or, you know, in the case of nutrition or dietary pattern and disease outcomes, disease exposure risk. So do these people over time, let's say, develop cancer, develop cardiovascular disease, develop diabetes. And what was their dietary pattern looking like before they developed that? So we could see if there's any relationship between the two. So people who want to be evidence-based, they'll be need to be looking at these studies. So this comes to my next question. What, what does it mean to be evidence-based? So I think we want to switch the term from evidence-based to more let's say science-based. We want to not only look at the evidence that supports our views, but look at science from a more general perspective. What does the scientific evidence have to say in totality of a particular topic? This means looking at research that agrees with us and disagrees with us, and looking at multiple different lines of research. So not just looking at randomized control trials, but also looking at cohort studies, also looking at some mechanistic work, also looking at, you know, some other type of work because uh, there are many different study types. So, you know, when we, we want to be science-based. We want to think sort of like a scientist. We want to ask questions. We want to put those questions to the test. Um, and we sort of want to think in terms of the scientific method, um, sort of the ethics of science. And we want to also think, I, I believe, more philosophically about science. What is science? What does it tell us? What, does it do what doesn't it tell us? And how can it be used appropriately? So I think we want to change away from evidence-based to science-based. And be, by being science-based, we want to respect science and as enterprise from multiple different like multiple different levels. Okay, and some people, despite all of this, they still take often a contrarian position to science. 
and they'll like sort of like make outrageous statements by like nitpicking mechanisms or finding faults in these like nutritional epidemiology studies of population. So they'll say things like the general population is unhealthy. There's a lot of these studies are based on like food frequency questionnaires. They'll say these studies have like problems. Or some people I've heard, they even say things like science is an iterative process. So like my outrageous theory is correct and eventually science will get there. So like, how do you answer people that say things like this? So we have to think of science as, um, there's auxiliary assumptions associated with science. So we didn't just come up with what we came up with based out of thin air. Everything that we do in science is theory laden, which means that everything is driven by theory. We have certain assumptions about the world and how the world works, and that drives our inquiry. That drives what we look into and what we study. So the fact that you came up with an outrageous view doesn't mean that it's worth studying because it has no basis in anything. You know, it's like, um, it's like me stating that why hasn't science looked into the flying leprechauns in my room that you can't see or feel or touch? You know, it's, it's an outrageous claim. It's not based on any reality. So why should scientists look into that? You know, it's just, it's shifting the burden to proof. So instead of you making the claim and you providing the evidence, you're asking other people to provide the evidence for your claim, but it's your claim at the end of the day. It's not anyone else's claim. So I don't have to back up your claim. You have to back up your claim or not. It can be dismissed. What's asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. You know, Hitchens razor, razor right there. So we have to think about it from a more philosophical background. What does science tell us and what doesn't it tell us? And also the nature of science. So it's, a, it's some people would describe it as iterative forward process. But we also have to remember that it, the bedrock of it are certain assumptions and theories. Yeah. And like the sort of example I had in my head is that I hear lots of people saying like the paleo diet or eating natural is what is optimal for health. And a lot of people, well, most people, in fact, they don't have any evidence to back this up. It's just their gut feeling. Well, you know, rattlesnakes are natural. Their poison is natural. Go get bit by one. It's a natural phenomena, you know, natural disasters. The, the word is in, it's in the name, natural, you know, natural catastrophes. <laughs> These things are natural. Just because something is natural doesn't mean it's necessarily good for us. And there are things that are not natural that are very beneficial for us. You know, for instance, cancer as a function of a disease is natural. It happens in many different animals. It happens in humans. It's a natural disease to happen right? Chemotherapy is not natural, but chemotherapy helps save lives. So what's not, what's natural versus what's not natural doesn't necessarily tell you about its health impacts. That's when you have to look a layer deeper or a few layers deeper into what actually has an impact on health in a positive way and versus a negative way. So we can't use this, this filter, this dichotomous filter of natural versus unnatural to, to make decisions about health and nutrition because that's just not, that's not critical thinking. It's, it's, it's not the way the world works now. Yeah. It's just going on the gut sort of feeling and just 
following your uh, in, in uh, like your, what you feel. And like in the food industry, there's so many products which are processed, which have managed to improve the status of our population. For example, last week I was at a presentation about iodine, how they, uh, I think it's also compulsory in America maybe, but they add iodine to salt and that's really improved the iodine status of the population. So people, if they don't have enough iodine, they can get goiter when their throat starts to swell up the thyroid gland. And all of these stuff, they're not natural. Salt naturally does not have iodine in it. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, look at the the way that we're living. It's not natural whatsoever. You know, people that are watching this are watching this probably on their phones or probably hearing on their podcasting app. None of this is natural. But, you know, it's obviously has some type of benefits to society, to humanity in general. You know, um, sometimes I, I understand where people are coming from when natural, you know, appealing to that. Because there are certain things that are not necessarily natural and don't necessarily help us, you know, with progress or with our health or whatever. But the filter of natural versus unnatural is mostly unhelpful. It's a distortion of how, of how to think. Um, this is where we have to think more critically about, well, you know, just because something is natural or not doesn't necessarily tell us about its impact on progress or health. We have to think deeper about that. Yeah, and a lot of these people that try and follow natural ways of diets, they will sort of like, I, from my point of view, they will pick and choose what they feel is natural. For example, they'll go for like just meat for their, their diets or just like only like pure food you can find in nature, but then they'll go into their sauna at night or they'll drive a car or into their like home that's got central heating. Right. So the logic is inconsistent. Um, you know, we, we, people want to live this natural lifestyle, but nothing about their lifestyle is natural. Um, I think the term natural is more of a marketing tactic. It's a marketing ploy used by a lot of food companies to sell certain products as natural because it, it just appeals to our intuitive idea that natural is better, that being natural or being in nature or whatever is better. And it's not necessarily the case. There are positive aspects to our conception of natural in nature. I think a book that I would uh, appeal to is uh, Natural by Alan uh, Levinsky. Oh, I forgot how to pronounce his last name. But it's a really good book called Natural. And it's a philosophical um, sort of discussion and investigation into our appeal to nature. So this appeal to nature is um, historical. It transcends cultures people often appeal to nature. They like the idea of being natural, but there are obviously drawbacks to that and benefits to it, ironically. So it's a really good book that I always recommend people look into when discussing this idea of nature and natural related to food and health. Okay. And how can like scientists or the evidence-based, uh, well, scientists, actually, how can they respond to people that give misinformation? What is the best tactics they can use to get the message across? So there's a number of different tactics. Um, I'm writing about this currently. There is this idea that we should uh, pre-bunk. So this means talk about the inaccuracies of a particular message or a particular uh, person before that person is exposed to that message or, or person. 
um, that has some success. Sometimes, you know, debunking helps and works. Uh, so debunking a certain message, but overemphasizing the correct information versus the false information. So that way people remember more the correct information. Um, you know, there's obviously other sort of techniques we use, which is, you know, fact-based rebuttals versus technique rebuttals. So when you're talking about like um, misinformation online, it often relies on faulty reasoning and faulty logic um, and certain techniques used by science denialists. So you could point to those and say, this is faulty reasoning. This is fallacious for a particular reason. Or, you know, you could point to um, the factual inaccuracies of it, or you could do both. I like to often do both, but you know, that can help science communicators or, you know, coaches or dietitians in general, better communicate the science of nutrition and health online. Another thing too, I think would be to work on your own message. Try to promote your own message to as wide a population as possible. You know, you want to tune out, you want to help people tune out the, the noise. So you want to be a, a person that's positive in the space, spreading good information and having a good impact on people. Because there's the evidence-based community on uh, social media now. And sometimes a lot of their messages are very good, but sometimes I see them almost like make fun of people that are giving out misinformation. And I'm not sure if this is like a good tactic where you like sort of take uh, the mickey out of someone. Right. I mean, like, I think comedy is a, a really good medium to express your message. And sometimes we have to make fun of the nonsense that people sit there and say. But I think sometimes we, um, when we, when we tried, when we have people that, like, for instance, when people show clips of, you know, Paul Saladino or Mark, Mark Hyman or whatever other person stating some bullshit, you're ultimately giving that person a platform. You're ultimately exposing more people to that person which can have an issue. Um, so we want to be cognizant of making fun of people because we don't want to make more martyrs out of them and we don't want to keep exposing them to more people first and foremost. So um, that's the delicate balance between debunking certain claims, debunking certain people and actually giving that person a platform, actually exposing that person to a different audience. So, I mean, that's a consideration that I think most people in the evidence-based space aren't thinking about too much or too deeply because it's all about the numbers, man. <laughs> you know, if I make, if I make fun of Paul Saladino, um, I'll probably get a hundred, hundred K views on reels, you know, compared to if I talk about the intricacies of, you know, the psychological component of eating or the sociological component of eating, which are probably, I'll probably get like 5,000 views at most. So, it's ultimately an issue of our culture and uh, social media itself, um, how social media kind of favors misinformation and disinformation over more accurate forms of information. It's a whole yeah, bunch so of layers. <laughs> yeah, I made a video on Paul Saladino as well, and then I sent it to my friends, and then they never actually heard of this guy. So, yeah, by the fact that I made a video saying why his information was wrong, I, they actually now know these sort of people exist when they wouldn't have in the first place. Right. And that can be an issue in of itself, because what if one day they're like, you know, let me look into Paul Saladino. And then they're like, there's something that he says that actually speaks to me, <laughs> you know, and then they fall for his bullshit um, because these people are really good manipulators. They're really good. Um, they're good at people getting to believe their message, no matter how ridiculous the message is.
they really get at people's uh, heartstrings. And they're super good communicators as well. They know how to like sell a story. As I said, like we all like stories and uh, even some, some people that uh, I study nutrition with, like we all get like, it's easy to see the message. And if you don't do your own research, think potentially what they're saying is correct. Yeah, stories are very intuitive to understand. Um, a book that I usually recommend people read is called Storyworthy. Um, it really talks about the, the art of stories and how to use stories to communicate to different people. I think science communicators really need to look into storytelling and how to use stories when crafting their message. I think, you know, because it makes us more human, makes us more relatable. And that's ultimately what we want. We want people to trust us. And one of the biggest ways to trust is relatability. Can, you know, are you an actual person I can relate to and find solace in? Um, yeah. Yeah. The problem is, is that most doctors or the, the world's best nutritionists, I guess they're probably not going to be on social media. They'll be somewhere in their clinic and they don't have the time to spread their information and they're going to end up losing the information war. <laughs> right. And I think it's a really important that, um, scientists and academics and practitioners realize the importance of social media, media in general, when crafting and delivering their message, because those who oppose science, science denialists, those who spread misinformation and disinformation and profit from it, they're the first ones to utilize these channels. They're the first ones to try to craft the message. They're the first ones that are trying to actively um, downplay the scientific establishment. So we've seen this with COVID-19. It's imperative, it's essential that scientists use and communicate their, you know, their views, their findings, whatever, in my opinion, it's just, I think it's essential because when you don't, someone's going to fill in the space. Someone's going to state something and we want to drown out the bullshit because unfortunately, social media companies are doing a poor job of um, I guess managing the threat of misinformation on their platforms. They're trying. I'm not, I'm not saying they're not trying, but they're doing ultimately a poor job of it. For sure. Yeah. And even sometimes you get charlatans going outside of social media and even getting into spaces where you think scientists would be, for example, like I'll give you the example of the case of reviews. Like I found I used to find saturated fat really confusing because there'll be like a few reviews coming out about like uh, whether saturated fat is good or bad. And then there was one like um, article I was watching, well, I was watching a video from Nutrition Made Simple the other day about uh, saturated fat is the, the new boat. Well, like something about saturated fat is the bogeyman. And they'll say like why saturated fat is actually good for you. And then all of the, it's a, it's a paper published and everything, all the methodology behind the paper, because the, the person that wrote the paper was like a businessman or somewhere like in the school of management. And, uh, so he's actually getting his message into a real paper because anyone can do a review and provide their own interpretation. And he's already got the end goal of saturated fat is good. And then he'll just based evidence around his thoughts. 
Yes. I mean, that's, that's the problem with, um, communicating science and the, the general public and social media is the lack of scientific literacy. Because if you're not scientifically literate in the, the science behind saturated fat, you're probably going to fall for a bogus paper that suggests that, you know, convincingly that saturated fat isn't bad for you. Because when people do a review paper, when people do a meta-analysis, who actually looks into the studies that are actually cited within the review or the meta-analysis? I know I do. Most people don't. So they're just going to take it at face value. Oh, this is a meta-analysis. Oh, this is a systematic review. It must be completely accurate. It must be good. They don't look at the methods. They don't look at what studies that, are, that those people are citing. They don't look at the weight that those studies that they're citing have on the particular outcome. You know, for instance, like there's certain meta-analyses out there that will sit there and suggest, oh, you know, saturated fat doesn't have a detrimental effect on cardiovascular disease. But when you look at the, the studies, like the actual studies that they're using in their analysis, it's based on, you know, Asian cohorts that are consuming really low amounts of saturated fat, well below the recommendations that many countries have. So <laughs> it's, you know, and that's something that a lot of people don't consider or look into. I've, I've even had colleagues, coaches that specialize in nutrition, cite some of these type of studies. And it's like, you didn't read the methods, did you? You didn't look into the nuances of that. So I think a lot of it is, you know, obviously research is a skill. Understanding a particular topic is a skill and it takes time. And building up scientific literacy is very important when talking about these certain topics. You know, um, we're not going to be scientifically literate about everything, but that's why I always stress building the tools and frameworks for critical thinking. So that way, even if I don't understand a particular topic, I know for a fact that something's off. You know, I'm not a climate scientist, but when people try to deny climate, climate change, I'm very skeptical. I'm very skeptical because they're using the same techniques for a person who denies the risk of saturated fat. It's the same techniques. It's just a different topic. Yeah, and I've been guilty of this as well, like just reading an abstract and sharing the paper and then after I've been getting called out for it. So my like new new thing is I if I want to share something, I have to critically read the paper, read the methods, properly understand what was going on. Because, for example, with the saturated fat paper, there were a lot of the studies he was talking about, he compared sw swapping saturated fat to like refined carbohydrates. So the carbohydrates in like cookies or whatnot. And uh, it wasn't comparing the saturated fat to swaps, which are healthy choices. So of course, in this situation, maybe saturated fat could have less of effect on your health than cookies, but or trans fats. So right. Exactly. Like if you swap it out with polyunsaturated fat, like, um, you know, from let's say like fatty fish, olive oil, seeds and nuts and stuff like that, you see like decreased risk, like across the board, you know, or, or you swap it out with monounsaturated fat, decreased risk, you know, but if you, if you switch it out with refined carbohydrates, you're not going to see anything. So, I mean, that's, that's what I'm saying. Like scientific literacy in the field that you're talking about is very important. And if you don't have this scientific literacy, this is where you have to talk to people who do have the scientific literacy. This is where you have to look at the experts in that field, people who publish and write about these things, because 
you apparently don't like not saying you Patrick, but like people don't have the skills to, to scythe through these different papers. They just don't. And they're probably not going to build those skills and it's fine. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but if you're not going to build those skills, if you're not going to get into nutritional science, if you're not going to get into a certain field of science, this is where you have to rely on the experts because you're not an expert. You're, you didn't study this. You don't know the nuances of this and it's fine. You just don't. Yeah, exactly. So if you want to know something, always read what the expert is saying, not just some, someone that seems to know everything, right? That's the overall message. Get right. the information from the expert. So for example, if someone thinks like phytic acid from grains is toxic, speak to the expert on grains. Right. Look into someone who studies that actual topic. And you'll find that the message is less extreme. It's more measured. And there's, there's contextual evidence supporting whatever they're saying. So they're not going to be extreme. They're going to say, oh, this is killing you. No, they're not going to say all that. You know, it's a lot more contextual um, when you talk to actual experts in the field. So this, this is why it's important to be comfortable not saying that you don't know and deferring to the experts. Yeah. And I was, I was listening to a podcast by the, the person that, uh, found Zonulin. So, which basically, it basically enlarges the, um, basically when gluten is in the gut, there's this, uh, I don't know if you're aware of Zonulin, but basically what makes the gut porous and temporary porous so that the gluten can pass through the gut. And even the heat, the person that like found Zonulin still does not recommend the, gluten-free bread to everyone. So now right. there's lots of people against gluten, but even the person that invented, like that found out the thing which could cause some health effects in people who are susceptible or intolerant to gluten, he still admits, no, I would not recommend a gluten-free diet for the normal person. Right. You know, it, it's, Nothing is a panacea. Nothing is universal when it comes to, I think, I wouldn't say, like, I would, yeah, I wouldn't say there's nothing universal when it comes to nutrition. I think there's always going to be exceptions. There's always going to be um, doubts pertaining to particular people. You know, there's always going to be different circumstances people have, you know. So, I mean, this is why focusing on the pattern is more important than anything. We want a good pattern, but a pattern can be modified, changed, refined. Um, a pattern isn't stuck. You know, it's not saying you'll eat only these foods. It's saying, you know, try to have these general foods in your diet, like in your diet, um, pattern of eating, you know? So this is why we, we emphasize the dietary pattern over all else. Uh, and what would you say to someone that, feels like their dietary identity is getting hold of them and they're getting like an unhealthy eating pattern. How can they break out of this? Cause it can be quite difficult and I, I don't know how to respond to this. So when it comes to a more un unhelpful dietary pattern, you know, like the standard Western diet or something like that, I would say, um, Look at more mindful eating approaches. Look at things like intuitive eating. Look at things like, you know, those type of areas, I think, because, you know, 
if you ever read into the intuitive eating literature, it doesn't suggest that everyone eats cookies and cakes all day. It suggests that people have a helpful dietary pattern. But what drives people to having a more unhealthy or unhelpful dietary pattern is often social and psychological. For instance, you know, those who are impoverished, um, more likely to be next to fast food chains, you know, so they're more likely to eat fast food. You know, you look at things like food advertisements, food formulation, these things are going to impact people's choices and abilities and nutritional quality. If you look at the psychological aspect, you know, there's such thing as emotional eating. Those who eat emotionally often gain weight. I'm, a, I'm an emotional eater. I'm not going to lie to you. When I go through something, food gives me comfort. And that relates to my psychological well-being. You know, unfortunately, I grew up in not the best space, you know, so that messed up my relationship with food. So I'm trying to rebuild that relationship with food again. So I often suggest that people look into those type of ways of thinking because it's easy to get into the trap of, well, just count your macros, bro, or count your calories, bro. And that's it. But it doesn't solve the overall issue with your relationship with food and how your food is getting to you. You know, this is why I want people to be more politically aware, more socially aware. There's certain policies in place that impact people's diets. You know, do people understand what those policies are? Do they understand how the food system works? Do they understand how the food is going from the farm or manufacturer to the supermarket to their plate? Those are essential questions that people need to be asking and considering when thinking about nutrition and diet. Yeah, and these are, this is all public health interventions you're talking about. So like structural interventions. And yes. uh, so what about like someone who is like more struggling with like, uh, like an eating disorder? So like where they're actually like restricting them fr themselves from food. Like, I would what, say for that, what happened? Sorry, Patrick. Yeah. So like, so, so something like, uh, like anorexia or like bulimia. I would say that person needs to speak to a qualified eating disorder therapist or dietitian. Um, they need clinical guidance to help them out of their situation. I know it's hard because not, especially in the States, not everyone has health insurance, not everyone has support. Um, but I'm sure there's certain resources, um, certain hotlines, people who call related to eating disorders that really help them find resources and help, <clears throat> excuse me, and get and like, them, help like, and get them yeah. out of that. And we, is it possible to like sort of be in the denial of like, of having some sort of problem? Or would you say it's, this is not a possibility? So the basis of motivational interviewing is a person cannot change unless they want to change. So even if you see on the outside, this person has problematic eating behaviors, it's not your place to change them. They have to change. You just help facilitate that change. If you're, okay. if you're, if you're a qualified professional to do so. So, I mean, it's a really different way of thinking, but you know, ultimately like compared to, uh, people with drug abuse problems, you can't get them. You can't force them to change. They need to change. You're just there for support. 
And, and can you facilitate a change if you're not a qualified professional, but it's just like someone uh, close to you? I would say try to get them to a qualified professional to get them to change, but just be supportive. Support them, try to understand where they're coming from, listen to them, and try to nudge them in the right direction. That's all you can do. Someone that has an eating disorder or disordered eating, um, they're not going to want to hear you know, oh, you have a problem, <laughs> or they might not even know that they have a problem, or they might not, they might know they probably probably don't care, or they're probably ashamed of it. So you know, it, it's that level of consideration, and compassion, um, trying to nudge people in the right direction. You can't force no one to do anything, um, even in in places and spaces where you wish you could for their own betterment. Okay, I think that's beautifully said. So to, uh, to get things a little bit on a nicer tone and the last few questions coming up, uh, assumptions versus knowledge. Uh, how does someone know what is right in the world where we don't have time to research anything, where we live in an information age? I will say there's a difference between access to information and knowledge of that information. So just because you have access to information doesn't mean you know how to utilize that information or what that information means in context. You don't have the knowledge of it. So um, this is why we want to help people build that knowledge through critical thinking. Um, my mentor in undergraduate school uh, was a philosopher in, of mind, and he talked about this concept of intellectual integrity. So... We want to facilitate this understanding and idea that we have certain values as, as critical thinkers, that when we're faced with new information that we believe in proportion to the evidence, we um, understand the fact that humans are fallible, that humans uh, are fallacious. And we also understand that, you know, our own misunderstandings and misgivings about a certain topic even if we have access to that information, doesn't necessarily make us knowledgeable. So this is why we have to defer to the experts. Um, there's experts in every single field that are out there and we ultimately have to be humble enough to know when to defer to them because we're not gonna be always be knowledgeable about everything. Yeah, I think that's well said as well. And also just, would you say changing your environment? So trying to just follow people who have a better, like more evidence-based message is something to do? Yeah, I mean, that ultimately helps. So during my transition away from, let's say when I used to do low carb, and then I was talking to the more holistic nutrition space, which was more, you know, hippy-dippy, uh, vegan, you know, all natural, seven people. First thing I did when I switched more to what I thought was evidence-based now, you know, more science-based, was unfollow them and follow people who more represented my new values um, and try to consume their content and try to understand how they were thinking about certain topics and understanding how they arrived to their conclusion. So it's important okay. to change what information you're consuming when you're trying to change um, your thoughts. Um, because ultimately the information that you consume is the information that you're gonna spit out and that's gonna be representative of what you know and what you don't know. I think that's well said. Thank you so much. And 
it's been a very like uh, insightful conversation with you. And just to finish on a on a nice note, uh, Jay, what is the meaning of life based on you? Because I know you've studied the uh, philosophy, psychology, so I think you'll have a pretty interesting answer. Hopefully, you've thought about this. Yeah. So I mean, people are probably not going to like this on the podcast, but. I don't think the meaning of life uh, can be described by any religion. Um, I'm an atheist, so I don't think that God gives meaning to life. I think that ultimately the meaning of life is what we give to it. It's our own individual interpretation of what life means. I don't think life has any inherent meaning besides what the human subject gives to it. So this means that the universe itself, the world itself, life itself, isn't different to us. But we, as people, make the decision to make it meaningful. And that's what makes it meaningful. Um, and there's nothing wrong about that at all. But we just have to accept the fact that meaning doesn't come from any divine source or any outside external factor. But it comes from ultimately from us. We determine meaning. And that's what makes life worth living. Jay, that was a great answer. And it's a great way for me to end the day because it's quite late over here. It's almost 10 p.m. So I have something to think over. So Thank thanks, for, thanks for yeah, answering my many questions. My, it's been very insightful. We've got a glimpse into how to think more critically, how to keep on answering questions. So I look forward to your work. Um, what are your future projects, by the way? I forgot to... Uh, ask this question actually so honestly my future projects i want to keep under wraps but um ultimately want to start a group of like-minded individuals to uh look over different topics within nutritional science look over different topics within science itself and have more educated discussions with like i'm having right now um and obviously i want to write another book so um i want to everyone keeps asking me how do I read research as a lay person about nutritional science? So I kind of just want to write that out instead of talking about it <laughs> <laughs> and just have that out there for people to read and understand and um, really contemplate, you know, I think that's what I really want to do. Okay. And I saw you also did a new, like uh, sort of, was it a tutorial on health claims on your website? Yeah. So I have a free course on health claims. I'm going to fix that up and probably modify it a little bit. But um, yeah, it's still out there. Uh, people could sign up for it. It's totally free. And it helps people think critically about health claims online. So I'll put all the links to these sources in the description to the book as well. Uh, and people can find you on Twitter, Instagram, anywhere else? Maybe TikTok. I'm thinking about coming back on there maybe some sometime soon. But I'm on TikTok. Um, yeah, but that's the only other place. And Substack. Substack is uh, my newsletter. So if you go on Substack and put in Science by Jay, I should pop up and my newsletter is right there. That's where I put it. My main thinking piece is on there. So really sign up for that if you can. Okay. Well, what is Substack? That's the first time I've heard of this, actually. So it's a publication platform. So it's a place where people can build a newsletter um, and host a newsletter. So I have my newsletter hosted on Substack. And it's a really good platform for doing that. Um, I'm going to put a lot more stuff on there. Uh, you can put podcast episodes on there. You can put YouTube videos. Well, you can put videos on there. You could do a whole bunch of stuff on there. It's really cool. 
Perfect. And yeah, talking about podcasts, I highly recommend everyone to check out your podcast on Sigma Nutrition, where you also talked about identity and like scientific denialism. And you've also got a good podcast with a few of the leading experts in plant-based eating. Thank you so much. I really appreciate so, that. Thanks. Thanks for joining and uh, speak to you soon, maybe one day. Take care. Bye-bye.